GM friends, and welcome to the Metacast Crypto Corner brought to you by Navic. This is brought to you live from sunny Spain, which is why I'm wearing sunglasses if you watch this on YouTube. I'm joined by my friends and colleagues. We have Jamie Wallace and then Carlos Pereira. Was that good? That was fantastic. I'm, I'm practicing that, that Brazilian R. Um, and today, the topic that we will be discussing and talk about, talking about is um, game fundraises or Web3 game fundraises during a crypto bear market. Um, one of the reasons we want to talk about this is because a lot of Web2, like non-crypto native game developers got really excited about the opportunities that Web3 brings, this new technology, technology stack that we can do some very exciting things with. Um, they got started. Everyone was super excited about blockchain. Prices were going up. Everything was going to the moon. And now uh, they suddenly fa face a crypto winter, as they call it. Um, you know, some of us here um, have been through a couple of those. And what can we learn, right? Uh, the three of us, we get regular pitches by games teams. And um, yeah, how do we look at games companies today? Um, what do they need to be mindful of? Uh, how are things shifting? What, will we, what would we recommend teams to focus on when they're pitching to investors and all that good stuff? Um, so yeah, let, let's dive in. Um, maybe first first question, um, and Carlos, you can take this one. Fundraising in a bear market, what are the main changes, do you think, that, that companies need to be mindful of? Um, I think that the the clarity of how companies can overcome the issues that basically are top of mind for investors right now, right? Like Ponzinomics, um, excessive inflation, just as a, as a different way, I guess, of saying Ponzinomics, um, budgets that were too fat, that needed too much money, valuations that required the public markets and tokens to be extremely efficient and, and well-priced in order to work. Um, I think, you know, if you work backwards and say, here's the projects that have not performed well in public markets, and to be fair, the majority have not, right? But we can certainly see one or another where they've performed particularly worse, perhaps because of how the economy was designed or something to do with the product um, and and change that, right? And, and, and I think another place where um, it's worth thinking about is... Um, when companies issue tokens, right? So versus coming to us and saying, hey, we're going to raise a seed and three months later, we're going to raise a pre-sale and four months after the, the first dollar goes into the business, we're going to go and we're going to issue a token or sell NFTs. Um, really thinking about the concept of tokens and NFTs as a debt that you take against your community, right? The moment that you take money from your community and the public markets who have less insight, less long-term conviction, more volatility, um, you know, the, the, the liquidity is thinner on those IDOs. Um, that you do it with intent. Um, I think one thing that we had been pushing our portfolio companies for a while was to try to avoid launching a token or pre-selling NFTs into an 18-month product gap if you're trying to develop a complex MMO, for example. Um, and I think that in the broader market, that's, that's a place where there's um, um, significant focus needed so that companies aren't incurring that debt until they're ready to deliver against it. Um, otherwise, you get these shark fin-looking um, charts um, which is not not just bad from an investment perspective because it, it sort of makes you question, will this thing ever go back again? Um, but from the community's perspective, now a bunch of people are down a bunch of money, um, and uh, you know it's going to be tough to get them to reengage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we I've been talking to a founder of a very decentralized project. They launched a token at the end of last year. Um, and now they want to go for a fundraise, but the value of the token is so low and the liquidity is so low that they're almost like they need to double the price of their token in order to be able to raise money at a, at a like a valuation that makes sense. And so, um, yeah, it's it's important to keep keep in mind the the worst outcomes when you launch tokens. Um, so yeah, I fully agree. Jamie, what, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I would definitely say sort of the landscape of six to nine months ago being a very Founder-friendly market where founders could set terms, uh, have a lot of flexibility in terms of who they want as their partners is sort of shifted to more of an equilibrium um, where you have, I don't think you have that access, like Carlos mentioned, to the public capital. So as part of your financing strategies, you won't probably be able to raise as much through an NFT sale, have that all that raise as much through a token sale. So you're going to have to rely more on private investors and partners, which obviously sort of complicate the... The fundraising strategy means that you're going to have to raise more by either selling more of the token supply. So I expect 
Typically, we've been seeing 40, 60, 50, 50 community investor models. I wouldn't be surprised if invest if projects start leaning into their treasury, their staking rewards pool, and it ends up shifting to 60, 40 investor community just to get them through the bear market. I think um, as well for founders, uh, I think just the expectations on growth probably have to be scaled back a bit. We don't know what it's going to be like for the next two to three years. These are still very speculative assets and a nascent industry. So I think um, rushing and putting a bunch of money in to get a product out 12 months from now might not be the best strategy with, we don't know what the market's going to look like in 12, in 12 months, if you're going to have that same sort of public um, speculation, anticipation that we for these products that we had 12 months ago. So it's more just being able to stay lean, being able to focus on products without sort of, you know, and being able to survive, I guess that's sort of the main thing. So I would say uh, the biggest thing for me is a shift from a very founder-friendly market to probably a more equal market where the investors have a bit more power to, you know, have a say in pricing rounds, being able to dictate terms a bit more, and founders are having to make compromises where, you know, they didn't have to make six to nine months ago. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, the compromise on the split of the token tables um, is important to to go a little bit deeper on. Um, there may be an initial reaction when you hear if it flipping from 60-40 towards the community to 60-40 towards the investor, a like, oh my God, this is like anti-community, whatever. Um, but it's important to remember that when when companies have sized these play-to-earn rewards or inflationary rewards, stake rewards, whatever they may be, um, they sized it with a first-generation um, terms of market understanding of how much you had to reward the users in order to get their attention. Um, we have, I think, been consistent for the last several months before, you know, whatever happened last two or three months of saying you should treat your tokens as UA. And if you're over distributing UA or, or um, overdoing UA through the tokens, you're paying more than you should. You're not getting good data on product market fit. You're incentivizing the consumer the wrong way. And I think that the market will mature to a place where um, it understands that, that, that it, there's an amazing opportunity to bootstrap networks and to overcome the cold start problem by issuing tokens early on and rewarding your first consumers. We're good with that. We love that in tokens, but you can't overdo it. And I think the overdoing it part is what is going to ultimately free up a lot of the tokens that have been reserved in treasuries that will allow investors to, for example, do flat rounds or, or not as much markups as people were expecting while not destroying the distribution um, hacks that exist within the products through token. So when it comes to um, when it comes to teams that have issued tokens and NFTs and have expectations by their community, what, like and and now see the valuation of both their fungible and non fungible tokens, you know, a tenth of what they used to be um, before this this bear market. What will you say to them? What will you advise to them? What do you say to to those teams? Yeah, I mean, I think I think on one hand, you are a bit uh, limited in the sense that, you know, you're not, you have a public market price, there is a market price for your token, we can all see it. Um, so you're kind of, you've got a valuation that's set for you, you can offer sort of a discount with a lockup to sort of entice investors to be long term aligned. But um, really, you're sort of at the mercy of your token. So um, that's, that's sort of one issue. Uh yeah, I would say, so I don't know, Carlos, if you have any points on it while well, I sort of double back and think on it, but that's sort of the one thing is you, you definitely lose a lot of flexibility, which is sort of, I think, going to hurt a lot of these teams who might have gone out a bit early with a token, have set high expectations and are now sitting at a token uh, market cap FTV that's not very favorable or not very, doesn't give them much flexibility for a raise. And unfortunately, you know, it's hard to convince an investor that, you know, your token you want to raise a double when your token is trading at, at half the valuation. So, I think that there's a there's a relationship between the price of the company and how much they have to raise to fund runway. That sometimes it gets too inverted, and it's really hard to come back from. Um, because in the end of the day, the companies have to raise how much ever they want to raise. The first thing that you can attack is reducing the amount that you're going to raise now. That means being more um, discretionary with who you hire, perhaps marketing, that, you know, the timeline that you push the product, the usage of outsourcing versus insourcing, building an in-house team that would be cheaper versus outsourcing it. 
Um, you know, there's all sorts of things that you can do to take the amount that you have to raise to as low as possible. But after you reach the, you know, the minimum available raise, then unfortunately, there's a level at which the market cap just dictates what you can do because you just get over diluted and, and it's hard to climb out of a hole after a certain point. Um, I think that one area of market activity that will continue to grow um, are investors um, doing these uh, publicly uh, the locked public tokens um, as a way of um, investing in teams. So in traditional venture markets, you have the concept of follow on rounds. You haven't really had much follow on activity in the token markets because um, of the speed that companies go public. Um, so we have always treated a portion of our capital as um, potentially going in and investing after companies are, are public, just buying the tokens in the open market, or more likely buying them with the direct agreement with the management team where we lock them for two or three years and buy them at a further discount. Um, that requires, again, for that relationship between burn, right, which is going to dictate the amount raised and market cap to still be at a healthy amount. But I think that there's going to be um, venture investor activity in those markets as well for the companies that have the metrics above the minimal viable product from, from the raise perspective. And then one, one also note on that is I think sort of what became standard over the past six, nine months is you could raise at your fully diluted valuation. Um, so a lot of rounds were happening at what the tokens are discount to the fully diluted valuation, but, and that was a concern and issue I always had with it, but it was just the way the market was. Sometimes you need to, uh, Go with where the market's at but effectively when you look at it if 10 percent of the token supply is available it's trading at a hundred million market cap so a one billion dollar valuation basically what you're saying is by the time 100 percent of the token supply is available in liquid you're going to have a 900 million dollars in basically bid coming onto the demand for the product coming onto the token to basically justify that price where it's at. So when you look, so I think something that's going to shift is I think teams are going to have a, a bit less success raising at their fully diluted valuation. And it might sort of fall either in between the fully diluted and where the current circulating market cap is, or even trend towards teams having to raise up, raise their circulating market cap, because, you know, you can make an argument that your circulating market cap is effectively what the value of the product is today. Whereas the, and sort of, I think the, and I also think that's another thing I think we'll see is we'll see these low float models sort of go out um, just because it, I think it creates in just bad, it's bad for price action, right? Because uh, the price of a token at 5% of the float available versus 100%, it's very likely, very unlikely that they're able to, to sustain some of these multi-billion dollar, $30 billion valuations, like even if the long tail of the product succeeds. And I think ultimately that's just going to leave a bad taste in investors' retail's mouths because, you know, effectively, like if you look at these models, you'd anticipate the probability of the highest price occurring sort of in the five to ten percent float area versus one hundred percent when all the tokens are liquid. So when you say um, the amount of tokens that are public and floating, does that include the tokens that are reserved for investors, or are they are those just the ones that were you know given out or sold to the public? Yeah, I just mean sort of like the tokens circulating that can be bought. So I guess the investors wouldn't be included in that. I'm not actually sure how many of these exchanges and um, websites do their circulating market cap calculation. But you look at if you go look at most projects, especially in the game five metaverse space, you'll see sort of a circulating market cap that is less than a tenth of the fully diluted valuation. So it's very tough to be like, you know, you're having 50K a day in trading volume you've got a $10 million circulating market cap, but your token's trading at a 500 million valuation, like it's very fully diluted valuation. It's very hard to justify right now that $490 million of bid is going to come in in the next three years to sort of keep your price the same. Cause that's effectively what you're, what you're betting on, or at least the way I've, I always looked at it. I don't know if Carlos has any uh, differing opinions. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's unusual for early on in the project for the amount of circulating tokens to be less than the fully diluted tokens. It's it's actually what you target, right? You have a two or three year vesting schedule, you have lockups. So early on, um, the, the amount of circulating tokens will always be smaller. Um, I think that the mistake happens when people when people forget about that, when people don't look at analysis like Jamie's and they say, okay, like, what is it, what does it actually mean to be priced at X or Y versus 10% of the float or 20% of the float to the amount of demand that has to come in to match 
the token supply as the token supply gets unlocked, right? So if you think over the next two years, I'm going to go for 10% distributed to 100% distributed, there's 90% of tokens that are coming on the market. Each one of those tokens, they have to get bought, right? If I just think about it as a two-sided pool, you know, they have to get bought. If there's no bid and they're just accumulating, accumulating, um, you're going to um, you're going to impact pricing. Um, and that's, that's where the, the mispricing mostly happens. Feels like a, every startup needs to have someone on board. That's basically a CFO that can manage all of this stuff. Because um, if you're a traditional games team, uh, building a game, it, it, it all sounds, you know, pretty hard to think about. Um, but I guess that's, that's the extra challenge um, that comes with the extra benefits that you get from uh, Web3 technology. So I, I also think we'll just on that, Nico, I just also think we'll see projects go public a lot later. Um, I think there is a benefit to sort of leaning into the community aspect, but I think we've seen sort of what happens when you go public too early. And, you know, I think retail has a significantly different investment experience and understanding of what an early stage investment, the problems, the issues that I guess like a, we, we would have being, um, you know, investors full time. So it's, I think projects will find that it's really tough to deal with a community with expectations of, you know, every project being successful when in reality, one out of 10 less than that are successful. And basically what we've done is we've shifted the private market ability and opened it up to retail. And I think a lot of retail were sort of unsuspecting or just unaware or um, naive to the risks, the problems, people are expecting profits to be distributed. You know, you've got major companies like Amazon not even paying a dividend yet. So I think I think sort of all that expectation, part of it's education on the retail side, and then part of it is also um, just companies being a bit more cautious about leaning into the going public too soon. Mm-hmm. One of the questions I've been um, thinking about quite a lot recently is, what are you guys actually looking for when a team comes to you in terms of tokenomics? I've talked to teams that come to me and say, look, we don't know what the... Um, blockchain gaming landscape when it comes to tokens is going to look like in the next year. So we can't plan on you know issuing a token during that time because you know it could look wildly different. So we're not going to spend time on you know working out tokenomics exactly how how that's going to look. Um, while on the other hand, I can imagine you know some investors saying like, look, we want to know how you're thinking around about this, um, and we expect like a kind like a detailed plan on, on how you're approaching this. Um, what do you guys? personal opinions on this? What do you, what do you prefer to see? Um, and yeah, what are your thoughts? Carlos, you can go. Yeah. Uh, J- Jimmy goes first. I need to think on this. Think. Yeah, definitely. So I think, I think the biggest lesson we've learned through this bull cycle is tokens cannot fix a broken product, right? And ultimately we can look at tokens now as more of an enhancement to a product and a better means of distributing ownership of a network or product to the community. So I think the blockchain allows very effective coordination tools. You can transfer all this value trustlessly. You can then coordinate with that value in very efficient manners through some of these snapshots, DAO voting. So I think we've, we've sort of realized that you can't just release a product, lean into some Pontinomics and expect, you know, it can buy you time for sure. And there's merits for user acquisition, like we talked about, that make using tokens effective and leaning into some of those Pontinomics effective. But ultimately, um, the token is sort of an enhancement versus a core piece of the product. And I think a strong product, even with average or subpar tokenomics, will still you know, be able to operate effectively. I think we've seen that in a few scenarios of some products having tokens. Um, and I think sort of this idea of overfixating, overindexing on tokenomics, especially on the game side, came down to a lot of investors in the space, in the GameFi space, not being core games investors, not feeling super comfortable being able to underwrite the actual game design risk. I think part of the reason for this overweight, over-indexing on tokenomics from an investor standpoint on the Web3 side was investors are coming from investing in DeFi, being generalists, and now sort of being opportunists going into the space, which you know any investor would. That's what you do as an investor. You find opportunities. But Games are really tough to invest in, as I've come to found for my sort of eight months at Bitcraft. And it takes a lot of experience to be able to feel comfortable underwriting that game's risk, underwriting the game execution risk. There's so many variables that I think uh, generous investors might miss out on. So, you know, instead of basically trying to develop conviction on that, ri- on that side, they go to where they're more comfortable 
I think humans were just like naturally seek comfort. So they went towards sort of the, the tokenomics and that's sort of where they focused. And it, it was more just a, a flight to comfort um, because they felt unable to underwrite that, that game drift. So I think that's going to change. I think people are going to either not feel comfortable and sort of resort to if they want exposure to this space, going th- making funds investments versus direct IP investments. Um, we've already seen, and this is common from a, bun- a bunch of crypto investors in the space, Web3 investors, is they've they've sort of shifted from IP bets. They don't feel comfortable underwriting that anymore. They're going to more infrastructure, which makes a bit, you know, they just feel more comfortable. Um, there's less ex- execution risk. So I think on, on the other side, that opens up the opportunity for investors for those games dedicated firms, the, the firms who that's their mandate is to invest in games to sort of excel in this next period, because it's going to be a battle of who can underwrite the best game to risk, who can find the best gaming projects, the tokenomics can be figured out later. I think there is, I think it's something to keep in the back of the mind and not just be like, we're going to throw a slap a token on this thing once we're done building it. Because, you know, as we've seen, there are some fundamental differences to token based games and web three games where it's important to design the game with that in mind and be able to build certain features, build certain coordination tools, build certain gameplay features that bode really well to tokens and and make sense for a token. There's also the whole tech implementation. Um, but I think we'll see sort of this transition from like, if you're looking at, if you're weighting it from an investment standpoint, going more from more 50, 50 to slightly overweight token towards quite overweight game and, and product just across the board. Um, I, I honestly think that although there may be a market shift, it's, um, it's, it's a lot about the, the, the DeFi generalist market appreciating the difficulty of shipping product and in particular game product. Um, I think that, you know, from our side, we've been fairly consistent on, um, on really respecting that you're at the, at the edge or at the intersection between gaming and crypto. And and both those things are super important. Um, I still attach a lot of value to the tokens um, or to the tokenomics. I think that, you know, in the end of the day, you still have to have an economy that, that that's balanced, right? It still has to work as a currency or as a mechanism for value accrual, because that's what you're investing in. You can't invest, like if this were a, a, a debt instrument, you would understand, you know, what um, what assets does the debt have claim to? Where does it sit on the capital structure? Like the analysis of what you're investing in, in this case, the token, necessitates a very thorough analysis of how value accrues to the token, right? So you have to remain highly focused on that. But it is going one step beyond. And so someone gives you a token chart and they say, oh, the player buys the token to do X and stakes the token to do Y and sells, you know, earns an NFT and sells that NFT to do Z and sort of like that flow and saying, okay, but but why would the person do X? Why would the person do Z? Like are the actions that require or are the actions laid out in the flow of tokens fun and something that the user wants to engage in, right? It, 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 it requires investigating the action and investigating the content and the product to understand and to make sure that it enforces that action or at least incentivizes that action, right? Um, you can't do this without a strong understanding of how the value accrues to the token, but the value ultimately can't accrue to the token if it's not being used in a legitimate fun way. And that, like, in the end of the day, the the, the art of due diligence in games or product generally um, is harder than the exercise of looking at, you know, basic math effectively on a tokenomics chart and saying, oh, yes, it looks like there's more sinks than faucets, right? So there was a section of the market that wasn't even looking at sinks and faucets. Um, but the market more broadly, I think, eventually gravitated to a place where they were like, yes, we should care about sinks and faucets and we should have more sinks than faucets. But then it's like, now take the step beyond that and say, like, are these sinks fun? Um, you know, and are these faucets not fun, basically, um, to, to, to ensure that the usage actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. If I would summarize uh, Jamie's earlier point in one sentence, it would be, if you're going to use the issuance of tokens as a UA mechanism, as a user acquisition mechanism, then you better make sure that your game warrants uh, good retention. And so that you, that the ga- that the players that you acquire actually stay because of your game. Um, so, uh, I would, add, I would summarize that uh, that way. And then, um, you know, it seemed for a while that people all agreed that tokens were a great way to kind of crowdfund, to get players that are excited around the game concept, um, allow them to like invest in the game, grab the ownership of that game. And now it seems that, you know, whenever everyone starts panicking, that actually turns out to be a really bad idea 
where you know the token value that we all agree on that the market agrees on goes down so much that it actually inhibits the team from raising another round do you think that concepts won't come back anymore that we've you know that there's a reason why we only allow institutional investors to back these early stage projects um and you know that this is something that we shouldn't do for like with with public with um, public money um or at least not without like a significant lockup where they cannot like negatively influence the token price um that fast what do you guys think not at all i think i think risk seeking behavior um is cyclical across all asset classes and across people um whether they're retail or institutional investors i think we have shifted from a global macro that was highly risk on to a macro that's highly risk off um, and I think that in times like these, people fly to safety and, you know, whether they hold cash or invest in bonds or whatever it is, um, that, that pendulum between risk on and risk off happens at the institutional level and it happens at the individual level. And I think that when the market shifts back to risk on, people will take advantage of a market that's back to risk on. Now, hopefully you learn lessons over time and you start doing these things in a way that's, um, more thoughtful, more due diligence, the same way that post the 08 crisis, I think people started looking at, for example, credit ratings a little bit differently. And, you know, you weren't just blindly buying AAA credit and you sort of, you know, you try to underwrite it. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're being mindful of, I don't know, um, derivative risk of how much amount of derivatives exist in the market. Like there was a big lesson in the 08 market um, and people came out of it. And even though they were still risk seeking, I think there were some lessons that were absorbed into the system. Um, but, you know, I forget who's the, the traditional finance writer that talks about this, but it's like it's the animal spirits, right? At some point, the FOMO yield-seeking behavior becomes so high as yields compress on the risk-free rate that people go towards more and more risk. They go farther into the risk curve to try to capture yield. And then eventually that collapses and the risk-free rate moves up. People fly back to the risk-free rate. It's, the, it's just how markets work. I still think that tokens um, are a good way of crowdfunding. Um, but I think that the expectations around the crowdfunding have to be set the right way. You know, if you go into a Kickstarter, for example, um, you pay $100 for a product and maybe they tell you like, yeah, it's going to take six months and take 12 months. You know, they come here and they give you the, the, the blog posts and sort of, you know, there's a, the expectations are set low and the management is done around a reasonable set of expectations. I think that as long as you're doing things in a way that's honest with the community, you're living true to the debt that you take against them. Where it gets out of whack is when you start fundraising and you say, I'm going to ship a full-scale MMO in the next three months. It's like, no, you're not, right? Um, it's like, no chance. Um, and so I think that that's, that's where the mistake is. Um, as long as the companies have an honest relationship with the consumer, I don't think that there's an issue with pre-sales or crowdfunding or token funding or whatever it is. It, it really comes to expectations. And, and really, when you see large scale market corrections, like what you're doing there is you're repricing a new set of expectations, right? You're like looking at this and you're like, oh, it's not worth 100 anymore. It's worth five because there's no growth because I was, I was wrong in my assumption of growth. I was wrong in my assumption of when the product will come out. I was wrong and like whatever, right? As long as there's an honest relationship between issuer and the person buying it, investing in it, holding it, whatever, um, I think that it's all fair game. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Carlos's point. I think um, humans are human natures or humans are just naturally greedy. There will be a time when we shift back to risk on. People are willing uh, to take those risks. I think, you know, there's going to be bad actors. There's going to be people. I wouldn't be surprised in the next cycle. We have similar amounts of rug pulls to an even higher degree just because, you know, that's just the way humans are. Um, they're greedy. And I do think on the retail side being, I think we've seen, sort of COVID, pre-COVID with mobilization, gamification, we've seen the amount of retail investors like increase dramatically and the amount of people now who realize if they want to, you know, they're not, they might not get the life that they've always dreamed of by working their nine to five. So people are seeking additional yield, additional risk. And I think slowly through COVID over time, through this bear market, people are getting battle scars that will deter some of them away. But I think on average, people are going to just be become more and more informed as investors, more and more aware. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a, in addition to companies managing expectations better, doing that might have better regulatory oversight, but we even see in equities markets, this sort of similar things happened with, I can't remember the name, but that, that electric trucking, trucking company, um, you know, so you do, these things still happen. And yeah, these things still happen in regulated markets. Um, 
I do expect the class, the next retail crypto class to be significantly more informed, battle scars, larger. Uh, and I think that'll in some ways limit that. People will be a bit more understanding of the early stage risk and actual success of these products. But I fully expect us to reach uh, higher euphoria, more madness, if not more, should we get another cycle in the next sort of five to three to four, five, 10 years. Apes get smarter every cycle. Let's remember that. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm curious to to get your thoughts on uh, more on the game model, what you're looking for today. I think, you know, everyone agrees that when the moment there's an urn inside a deck, we get a little, little bit less excited by what we've seen. And maybe you disagree. I would love that, to hear that as well. Uh, but what are you like in the blockchain gaming space excited about now? What are you looking for? What do you like to see? Carlos, you can go first. Yeah. Same, same as last time we spoke, man. Um, economies that are deep, no change. No, nothing that's ha- like you don't get into the business of venture investing with funds that are ten-year funds to to shift your conviction six months on price volatility, right? Like when you make the decision to raise a vehicle, to have investor capital, to go into a market to deploy, it has to be done with long-term conviction, especially because you can look at crypto and it's wildly volatile, right? So the like whatever is happening now. Um, I don't think should come as a surprise. Um, it happened fast, right? It happened super, super fast in terms of like the Luna collapse and then Celsius, the systemic risk. It was it was faster than maybe I would have expected it to be. Um, but the magnitude of the of the delta between all time highs and where we are now, I don't I don't think is without precedent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it can't shift long term conviction. Um, when we think about the usage of tokens, what makes tokens special, uh, fungible or non-fungible? I think on the on the fungible side, it's deep, robust economies with plenty of sinks and faucets, um, a reason for the player to exist in that environment and spend that currency and use that currency. And if we can see single token models that allow some governance to accrue um, to, the, to the token as currency and as governance at the same time, even better, excited about things that are working with that idea in the market. Um, so, you know, deep, deep, complex economies that merit a currency within that ecosystem, um, you know, that, that, that area remains super interesting. And then on the non-fungible token side, um, I view them as fundamentally status goods, right? I've burned a lot of money on, you know, non-fungible non-tokens. Um, and I think that, I think this stuff has value. I think that the moment that you start living in a, in a digital environment, the moment that you migrate towards a synthetic reality where you attach as much value to the digital world as you attach to the physical world, um, I think it's natural that you will want to buy status goods. Like for example, I was never a big buyer, like a microtransaction person in gaming until I started playing Warzone with my friends in traditional modern warfare that I was playing, uh, like multiplayer by myself, I wasn't buying skins. The moment that I started playing with a bunch of friends, I cared. I wanted to have a cool skin. I wanted to have a cool weapon, right? I was vain. I get it. I'm a vain person. But like that's that's the machine, right? There's there's status goods that exist. And I think that people will buy status goods to show off, to, to, to represent themselves in digital environments. And I also think that there remains um, the, another thesis that remains is this notion of the, the NFT as the millennial country club or the Gen Z country club. Um, that to me was actually quite clear um, at NFT NYC last week, um, where you know there was one day that I went to three different parties that were attached to NFT things. And um, one of them was with a lot of traditional finance people that were getting into generative art and all of that. And like that group that coalesced around an NFT looked very similar to, to sort of the world that I come from of traditional finance with some new faces from the NFT world there looked a certain way. And then I went to another event that was an outdoor concert um, by an outdoor magazine. And they were talking about conservation and nature and culture. The crowd was a little bit older, uh, mid thirties to, to older, probably on average. And, and it was very clear that people were trying to use the NFT to galvanize a community around the idea of preserving the world, of exploring nature, et cetera. And then I went to another thing that was like a 90s hip hop, super heavy, like street fashion and culture. And it was young and it was super ethnically diverse. And these are three different places that have created communities around um, a status good that is both a status good and a ticket to admission into into experiences, be them digitally or physically. Um, I still believe that those things have 
a lot of value. Um, can they get mispriced in the bull market? Of course, it can get mispriced in the bull market. But it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as crazy that the best non-fungible tokens will have values comparable or even higher to um, the best non-fungible non-tokens, right? Like the art market broadly. Um, and so there's absolutely no change in long-term conviction um, or in the things that I was interested in for the past, I don't know, several months. Before I, I, I ask Jamie the same question, Carlos, does that mean that you're... Um, on the fungible side, like how are you thinking around more casual games and and fungible tokens around around those? I struggle with with tokens on casual games. Um, I think that they can maybe work, and we've certainly invested behind that thesis for ecosystems, an ecosystem of casual games mm-hmm. where you sell both NFTs and tokens as a way, you know, as assets that players transport across different games and as a common currency that links a bunch of different mini games, casual games together. Um, I think that there's an opportunity for on the non-fungible side on the casual games because they're generally dictated by whales in Web2 and whales just want to buy fancy stuff. And so I think that there's a space for for the for the NFTs. I think tokens on casual games are, are harder to make work. Um, I think you can use them on, for example, um, tournaments. Best player gets, you know, some, some you know, turn, for example, something like a skills in the public markets where you're rewarding casual games within an ecosystem. Um, and I think that you can use them to push the, um, to facilitate, because casual games, people get tired of them pretty quickly, oftentimes, because it's like, it's, it's boring, right? You do it a handful of times and you master it. Um, and maybe you can use the token plus the NFT to, to capture that user. And instead of them, him, her, them churning out of your ecosystem, churning out of your game into something completely different, you say, hey, you have all these coins here, whatever, play this other game. And you're sort of, you know, doing that, that whack-a-mole of new casual content so that they churn inside your ecosystem instead of outside of your ecosystem. But if you say it's a single casual game, single IP casual game, and we're going to have a, a, a fungible token attached to it. Um, I'm generally deeply skeptical, but you know, open-minded. I'm sure there's people that can probably prove me wrong out there. And if you can, call us. Pitch if, at Bitcraft. Call us, man. Yeah. You pitch at Bitcraft. Obviously, 100%. Just don't talk to Carlos. Talk to me or Jamie. There you go. We're your friends. <laughs> Jamie, how about you? Um, yeah, just on that last point, Carlos, I completely agree. That's the one thing I've really struggled is sort of these hyper casual casual games introducing a token economy and the analogy i always use when i sort of try and justify why i can't come to terms with it making sense is a town wouldn't really a town it doesn't make sense for a town to have its own currency right but a country makes a bit more sense because you have an ecosystem and i think large-scale mmos sort of have the depth and breadth to to justify having their own currency you've got enough different parties that want different things whereas in a casual game you you probably have whales and players who sort of i just don't think you have enough like different player types and different player motivations to sort of support um basically a currency or token around the thing that being said i do think for casual game studios the nft aspect proves to be a super interesting um, and promising aspect of monetization and tool to coordinate within the economy and i think i wouldn't be surprised if you see a casual game be super successful they release a line of games and the long tail they end up making sense for them to release a token into the ecosystem but i struggle for um tokens to be like native to these casual games um and then going back to your other question nico i think another back to analogies because i love analogies but um one of the analogies i've always used to sort of describe the past nine months is as like investors in general just retail private um it feels like everyone's been investing two to three beers, four beers, some maybe more beers deep. And now everyone um, like woke up in the morning, we're sober. So in terms of expectations around some of these grandiose to earn schemes, I think a lot of us are sort of like, okay, this, this doesn't make a lot of sense. You can't like blockchains are incredible tools for transferring value and maintaining value, reducing leakage. But I'm still not convinced that it, creates uh, extremely positive sum systems and networks where you can have the majority of your player base earning consistently uh, for an infinite amount of time. So I think that's just like one expectation. Um, in terms of what what I'm personally looking for is I'm personally excited about people who understand that sort of the, the, the tools and the capabilities that blockchain check enables. So they're not, you know, they're not merely 
copying Pontinomics or doing like that, but they're like, okay, we can build something really cool here. We don't exactly know what, but we have some ideas of like how we can facilitate new game loops, new game designs, how we can use the blockchain in a different way to create a better player experience. Um, so I'm personally looking or excited about people who come with new forms of monetization paths. I think there's, we've talked about it, like Carla said, I think our sort of thesis as a firm and on the crypto side of Bitcraft is we sort of think it's going to trend towards the developer acting as a government taxing transactions with the added flexibility of being able to alter slight things in the economy to sort of push primary sales to maybe support the need to not have to do what governments do, which is inflate currency to be able to support economic growth. So I think you have a bit more flexibility as a game developer versus a government to be able to introduce more primary sales, monetize it further to maybe support the fact that, you know, you're not going to have the same sort of economic scale that a government does. Um, but just looking for people who are inspired by the space, excited, um, looking through the noise a bit, seeing a bit more clearly. And they're just like, I think we can build really cool things. These are some ideas that we have to sort of skeptics, bullish skeptics, I would say would be the exact, um, exact, you know, sort of people that get me excited. Those founders who are like, I think everything in the space doesn't really work. Um, I'm not convinced of it, but I do think there's really cool things that can be done with the space. I'm not exactly sure what yet. I want to explore that. Um, So those are the sort of things that I'm, excited about because now you have the time to experiment. You've got no expectations. You're not going to have to be comping to anything successful or pumping to $40 billion market caps. So that the copycat trend and phase, which is common in bull mature markets of, you know, you're going to copy what people copy success, right? And right now, besides a few projects, you don't really have that thing to look up to, to be like, that's what we want to be. That's what we want to imitate. You're sort of navigating uncharted waters now again, which is, uh, I think, super exciting. And I'm so excited to see sort of the primitives, the business models that come out of this this bear market period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I echo that last point, um, I'm looking for games or game developers that are using the blockchain to enhance gameplay more than add an economic layer on top of a, on top of a game. So if you're doing something like that, let us know. Um, let me know. Love to talk to you. And then, you know, the, the final point of discussion I want to have with you guys um, is around the first point that Carlos, uh, that you guys made, where you have a very deep MMO with a very deep economy and their tokens, infungible tokens specifically, makes sense. So my thoughts, and I've, my, my, like, I was fully on board with you guys, uh, but talking to people that have been building games, um, blockchain games for a while now. Um, and, and so this example is Chris Clay. I had him on, I think two weeks ago. We talked about his game, Gods Unchained. And so one of his biggest headaches is designing the game, um, knowing that what the only thing that players will do is try to maximize the amount of value that they can extract. And so I, I've my, my current feeling is that um, this is most of the players in the blockchain gaming space. And so even if you develop an MMO today, I think you're going to struggle balancing it in a fun way because most of the people that are currently going to play it are going to be trying to get as much out of it as they can, right? If there's any loop that like has a net positive return, I think that's going to be abused. And so either you're going to have to like solve for that specifically, um, but in my current thinking, and I'd love to have your thoughts as well, it feels like sustainable, deep, blockchain-based economies, which are by definition open because they're in the blockchain, um, are still a uh, ways away. Yeah, so so my sort of answer to that would be twofold. First being, I think if you look at the users, the web, current Web3 users, I think their propensity for risk and uh, their goal of profit maximization is probably significantly higher. Like the distribution of people, of, of people who want to play and people who want to maximize profits would be significantly higher just given the current Web3 demographic. So you're going to have more players in the game who are there because they probably were in DeFi or they probably Ethereum looking for returns and now they're playing games and they're gamers. So they're aligned, but their end goal is sort of to make returns. And again, like despite this being uncharted waters, I think end game, we talk about these being governments, we can see countries, there's a lot of data to sort of see. And you can see in in a regular economy, like there's people who are very ambitious, they're capitalists, they want to make money and they want to maximize the return and the quality of life they have. And then there's other people who are, you know, they're comfortable 
not earning or, you know, you've got like people who are comfortable just living in a van and traveling the world or, you know, just experiencing stuff, living in cheap countries, sort of, you know, they don't, they're, motiv- they're not motivated by money. And I think as the Web3 space matures, what you're going to find is this distribution that skews very towards profit maximizing um, return maximalists are going to sort of, you know, equalize a bit and you're going to have a better balance between players and participants of the ecosystem and economy that are less motivated by money and more motivated by fun and stuff like that. And they're fine to put money in. They just want to be there, have a good time. Uh, and there's always going to be the profit maximizers. Like you just, I, lo- I look at these things as if our end game is to reach what an actual physical economy looks like just digitally, you're going to have a way more diverse. Like I think if you took, like if you said everyone's a profit maximizer, that's clearly not true because I can, I know I've got friends who, you know, they're motivated by completely other things than money. And I think just the current Web3 demographic is a misrepresentation of the end game population for these games. And that's sort of, the issue that people are running into. So it's part of a market maturation phase, which is why I think games launching in sort of the next three plus years are going to have probably a bit more advantage because you're going to have a bit more um, equitable distribution of, of player types. Um, and yeah, it's just like that. that's sort of the way I always looked at it. I just think everyone in the space ultimately is, I would say as much as we say, you know, but most of the people here, majority of the people here here to make money at the end of the day or they came here to make money and they're that's sort of their primary motivation so it makes sense that when they're playing these games they might be gamers they're there to make money right and i think it's just a market maturation expectation phase which should iron it all iron itself out over the next few years so i'm not i'm not too worried about that element i think that's just sort of a present state issue that um isn't reflective of of a future future digital economy world Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the complex games that make it and, and that I'm excited to see um, will provide an earning opportunity alongside two main buckets. One would be something akin to blue collar labor, whether that's mining. Uh, if you look at something like Eve, like the person that drives the ship, pilots the ship from point A to point B, like low, relatively low skill. And I think that to the extent that you're doing these things on global servers, um, the hourly wages that you can get for performing blue collar labor tend to collapse towards the minimum wage of the, the the cheapest minimum wage of the country that has players in it. There was an article by Ralph Coster um, from Playable Worlds a number of probably a year ago at this point talking about that as a challenge um, of, of play to earn games. I think the other place where you're going to have significant opportunities for earning um, is at the intersection of UGC. Um, it's actually extending the world, creating a mod, driving value to the platform and all that stuff. Um, I'm pretty sure I have the skill to perform the menial labor stuff. I don't, I don't think I have the skill to like build a digital world and like do that stuff myself, right? So when I think about I want to play a great Web3 game, my default is to assume that I'm going to be net negative financially. And the reason why I'm excited about it is because every now and then you drop a really rare item or you churn, right? You decide to to leave the game and you can still sell. I can think of several MMOs that I've played over my life that I really invested hundreds, thousands of hours into and two things, uh, you know, happened in them in common. One, over time I dropped, for example, a really rare staff for a mage class when I was playing a brute class and I had no use for it and I was selling it for digital currency that just bought me more digital goods, but like that sort of went nowhere. Um, I was never willing to go into PayPal to transact in the black market, um, you know, and and um, the other thing that's common with it is I churned. I don't play any of them anymore. Um, and so I know that I left significant value on the table um, and and I look at it as a as the, as a as a high chance of some recovery if I churn and a low chance of good earnings if I get something rare, if I do something, you know, nice. Um, and, and I think that that's the default behavior that we have to believe is there ultimately. I don't think, you know, I, I wouldn't be doing the, the work that I'm doing if I thought that everything that we do and all the time that we spent is to go after a million wallets. You have to believe that you're working in gaming, right? It's not like you're not working in crypto gaming, you're working in gaming. You're working at the intersection of crypto with gaming and, and, and crypto is there to to make it better, to solve my pain points as a consumer, to magnify the experience, to do you know amazing things, to open doors, to show a new form of gameplay. But it is gaming, 
And I think that when you look at the prototypical gamer or the stereotypical gamer, I think a stereotypical gamer is, is playing for fun. And I think that they are spending money to be there. Um, and if you're not producing products that have an exogenous cash flow into that economy, um, then it doesn't matter if it's a deep MMO or a simple casual or whatever it is. Like if you don't have money coming in, the thing doesn't work. It's that simple. So um, no, no change to my thesis on deep MMOs. Still highly excited. And I think I would just add on that point, Carlos, that as founders, game designers, I think um, it's pretty clear now that when you sort of look at your competition and your addressable market, um, I think the, the Web2 side is increasingly more prominent because the only way these games are going to work with now us realizing that this token isn't going to unlock this major value source and major game experience, at least yet, is you're competing against Web2 games. And I think that's really important. And I think the quality of, of games, of games, if, if people are willing to write, a, if like, if, well, let's put a standard Web2 game uh, as a 10 out of 10. I think, you know, typically over the past cycle, people have been comfortable underwriting like 5 out of 10, 6 out of 10s, 7 out of 10s maybe even lower. And I think what we'll see is a trend towards 9.5s and above. And it's just going to uh, become a more like the, the the crypto element isn't going to be as much of a factor. It's more so like the the time advantage, but we, we should trend towards 10 sort of over the next few years. Fantastic. If you're building a 10 out of 10 game, third time the charm, get in touch. We'd love to talk to you. All right. Um, this was awesome discussion, guys. Thanks for the insights. Um, I really like this. Um, so yeah, Carlos, Jamie, thanks for joining. Listener, thank you for listening. Um, I hope you learned something. Um, if you're raising, it's not hard. It's not easy today. Um, and if you wanna, yeah, if you wanna raise, you can contact us. If you wanna, you know, get some takes, uh, get some tips, or or have some feedback, you can also contact us. Happy, um, happy to talk to you about it. And then with that, we're out, and we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Cheers. <laughs>